Hello and welcome to EM Talk. I'm your host, Judd Smith. EM Talk is a podcast sponsored by Axon Education's Texas EMS School. The Texas EMS School is dedicated to providing the most efficient way possible to learn all aspects of EMS. We're also dedicated to actively improving and adapting our EMS education methods in order to meet an ever-changing healthcare world. If you ever have any interest in gaining your certification as an EMT or an advanced EMT, please feel free to visit our website, axoneducation.com. On this episode of EM Talk, we visit with Tracy Dean. Tracy Dean is a helicopter paramedic. There's uh, lots of terms used, flight medic, uh, hero, all those things that come to mind. But what we're really looking at today is what is the big difference between helicopter EMS and ground EMS? What we're wanting to understand really is what it's like to be on that helicopter. Now, most of you out there are going to understand what it's like to be on the ground, and some of you might even be flight medics or whatever you would like to call it. But uh, Tracy's going to try to help us really understand from his perspective what it's like to have done both and the challenges that you face from doing flight EMS. So, uh, Tracy, thanks for coming and being on the show with us today. Absolutely, Judd. Enjoy, always enjoy conversations. I've been a paramedic. Uh, this is a midlife shift for me. I actually started in 2005, and uh, I'm an older guy. I'm probably twice your age easily. <laughs> my my wife, who is a nurse, is an RN, uh, was actually a paramedic prior to becoming a nurse. Her mother is a paramedic, and her grandfather was whatever they called them back in the 60s, 70s, when they, you know, the old Cadillac, Station wagon ambulances. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when they would just yeah, basically yeah. just a load and go in the in the hill country area of Texas. So it's been in her family. She's the third generation in her family. So um, just over the course of time, it was um, just something I had the opportunity to pursue, mostly just to kind of be able to understand what they were talking about and join in the uh, dinner time conversations at the. At, Thanksgiving family gatherings on their side because everybody is in that is is so in that field. Terribly morbid conversations, yeah, exactly. I'm sure. Exactly, and you're just like, what <laughs> are we talking about? Absolutely, very interesting. But I, I had an opportunity. I intended to just go through a uh, EMT basic program and just basically to get that certification and just do it on a part time basis. But but really um, enjoyed the uh, uh, the atmosphere, the environment the people that were involved in it so it just evolved over time i was um a sales marketing guy initially out of school uh, went to college for a few years you know, i wasn't always the stellar student came <laughs> out went to work for a for a company in a in a sales marketing position for about 15 years and transitioned into um, a vocational ministry role for a few years and then transitioned out of that into into this field so kind of had a, a wide variety of experiences but Really enjoy this. Really enjoy this. Well, and, and I can identify with that. I've, I'm one of those guys that's like, well, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? And right. I went from roofing to to ministry to, to this and right. probably <laughs> got involved in this in a similar way that I saw a, uh, a field where ministry was needed. I sure. saw that, you know, you have these people and they're in their worst moments and maybe yeah. that's a really good opportunity to reach people. Um, it started that way, and uh, as EMS does, it, it 
begins to jade you a little bit and, and change your mindset. But, uh, you know, cling or cling to that and try to stay in that positive mindset and keep keep pushing. So I, I respect all of that. So started out in a bunch of different positions right. and then you found yourself going through EMT school right. and then becoming a paramedic. So where's your first medic job? Where do you work first? Um, I started working for um, local 911 ground service um, in, in the Abilene, Texas area and part time initially EMTB. And then as I was going to school, um, EMTB, EMTI and then through paramedic and then transitioned into a full time role. And that with with the nine one one ground and you know full time position uh, in Abilene and then a part time position in some of the rural areas as well, um, and then had an opportunity. Uh, my wife, as I said, is a nurse, and we we did a travel a travel nurse uh, gig for a few years. Uh, I ended up working in uh, a level one trauma center in in, in the Dallas Fort Worth area. At, they hired paramedics to, to uh, work with the nurses and really enjoyed that and then and then stayed working ground part-time and, and through that uh, had some contacts in the air medical field and um, uh, it's an open position they they uh, encouraged me to apply so I did that and transitioned into the in the position I have now so so what was it like working in the hospital setting I love that actually it's a it's a great uh, eye-opening opportunity, and the, it, this was a hospital that actually values um, EMS providers, paramedics, and they they use your skills in a lot of different ways. And you just you're just exposed to that side of the uh, of the care of, of the of the patient care. You know, transitioning from pre-hospital to hospital. So and more long-term care, really. Yeah, longer. Well, in the ER, it's still you know you still a matter of hours versus versus right, uh, right. ICU or. Or on a, on a floor of the hospital, but it's still longer term than what you would expect to have, uh, especially as a ground transport right. 911 responder. Now the air medical, we have longer patient contact times, contact times, just because of the nature of the business and the distances we transfer people and things of that nature. But right. Well, I mean, I think it's uh, it's interesting. You're kind of mentioning it, maybe on purpose, maybe not. But uh, there's so many. We talked about all the different ways that you can do EMS now. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, it, it's really grown into this this profession of uh, it could be anything. Um, you've got paramedics and EMTs working as school nurses now. Yes, you do. Um, you've got them working as ER techs. Some hospitals you're working similar to how an RN would work. Right. Um, I mean, it goes on and on. It's just changing always. And, and even now you've got community paramedicine, which yep. has really been around for way longer than most people think it has right um but it's it has no definition in reality the community right. paramedic right now in our area could mean that it's just a checkup service like a a home doc that goes right. there and, and takes vitals and tries to keep you from having to go to the hospital in some areas they work more like a pa they're prescribing right. meds they're you know they're treating on site and then leaving uh, so it's just, it's an ever growing field and you've got to experience more pieces of it than a lot of us have, which is really cool. So it is a, it is a good, it is a good way to get a, a big picture view of what, uh, EMS can incorporate into, yeah. its, into its role. So, and it is evolving and growing and you're right. There's not a lot of, um, uh, defined roles for pre-hospital providers. You know, right. we're still trying to find our way 
as a profession, as a vocation, you know, yes. and a lot of it's blended with the fire side of things. A lot of it's a lot of it's becoming blended with the in hospital, in facility type services. And then, like you said, you have a variety from 911 uh, responders to uh, strictly transfer services, critical care transfer services, which is an amazing yeah. vocation as well. And a lot of requirements there. And that's kind of what the air industry uh, is to a large degree as a critical care transport service, even though we do a lot of other, uh, have a, a larger role than that. But. So anybody that's not listening, or anybody that's not listening, <laughs> for anybody that's not aware, what what is critical care transport? What does that, that term mean? Typ- typically, a patient coming from one facility going to a higher level care facility, say from a, from a transport from a hospital in Abilene to a hospital in Dallas-Fort Worth. And typically it's a patient um, that exceeds um, the resources, the, the treatment resources, the provider resources. They probably need a specialist or maybe some longer term care in an intensive care facility. And a lot of these patients will, will be um, not in great shape. So. Right. Um, the, the way air medical addresses that is our crews are, are, um, paramedic and nurse, typically a nurse with ICU and ER experience. So you work with, with uh, a different discipline that has a, a lot of, uh, experience in, in that field, caring for that type of patient with, uh, multiple medication drips. You may have, you know, we transfer patients where we have a stack of IV pumps. They have right, to take right. this typically on a vent, sometimes on other uh, type of equipment, typically invasive type monitoring uh, as well. So there's just a multitude of, of um, uh, things to manage in that situation. And then you combine that with the small <laughs> limited space that you have in an aircraft. Oh, yeah. So you have, a, you have a lot of challenges in that aspect, but it's uh, it's really interesting, most well, definitely. And uh, I like uh, I like the idea of critical care transport because um, a lot of people think that that there's some kind of line where it becomes critical care, right? And it, it's more relative to the patient's condition sure. and, and sure management is. procedures, absolutely. And um, and so you know you'll get you'll get people trying to manage that patient that maybe aren't. Uh, as educated as they need to be in order to do that, yeah. which is where, I mean, air services and things like that come from. Right. Um, so, but really air service started as, as a means of, of getting people out of places that, a, that yep. a ground unit couldn't get to. Or just a rapid, a, a lot of it developed, you know, of course, a lot of EMS has developed through uh, battlefield right, circumstances, exactly. you know, and so exactly. especially in the Vietnam era, the, the air transport, the helicopter transport, extracting a guy from the field to a field hospital rapidly to be able to give them a chance to survive their right. injuries, their wounds. And that's the way the uh, civilian air medical field really began as well, just a rapid transport from an isolated or, or resource challenged location to um, uh, a facility that would give them a, a better chance at survival. And in, in the earlier days, especially before most um, uh, cities the size of Abilene or similar locations had interventional cath labs and things of that nature, a lot of people were transported for those type procedures, So, which is becoming less because 
as technology grows, smaller facilities are able to do more for each patient. Yeah. And so there's there's um, uh, some of that demand is decreasing, but just the patient population in the in the rural areas, which is kind of the service I work for, kind of our bread and butter, so to speak, is transporting from a small rural resource challenged uh, facility to a higher level care facility. Which or is from, from scenes. I mean, it's not just facilities. We do scene flights as well, where maybe you have a pretty pretty significant trauma patient that needs rapid transport to a, a level one facility. Or right, some, a 50 some, minute transport yeah. means death for yeah. some of these people. Exactly. And exactly. so you've got to get them somewhere faster. Exactly. Or, I mean, you consider like a, a spinal injury. It's, yep. it's a lot less jarring in a helicopter yeah. than it is bumping down the highway in an ambulance. Exactly. So, uh, and so you and I met with me being a student, but then we got to know each other as you responded to my rural area. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I, I kind of want to talk about those two differences. You've got those transfers that, that you guys do from just one general hospital to another, right. but you've also got the, these, these uh, scene responses and you've right. got these rural areas that really respond. Most of the time, if you're coming to a rural area, it's because the patient uh, can't manage the time it takes to get to where they right. need to be. Right. Um, and so let's talk about let's talk about those two things. So let's start with a scene response. So what kind of scene responses do you find yourself responding to the most? Well, typically a scene response is going to involve some type of trauma. That's the most common scene response for us. Typically an MVC, a fall, industrial accident, agricultural type accident, oil and gas in this part right, of the world, right. of course. And and typically someone um, who and, and you know we don't have uh, the luxury of imaging on our ambulances yet. I mean, it's, so you can't really tell uh, what's going on with a patient. So if you suspect that a patient may be, um, have a critical injury, it's not always obvious. Right. If, you, if, if a responding ground EMS unit suspects a critical injury where time is absolutely of the essence to get that patient to definitive care, then a lot of times they will request air transport simply because of that, uh, uh, inc- that, reduced transport time getting them to, to definitive care right uh, well faster. I mean every injury every illness has its its golden hour Absolutely. or whatever timeline yep. you want to it's real to. it's a real yeah. thing and, and you'll see it if, if you've ever been in the situation where somebody didn't call 911 in time and you find out the timeline they had a stroke you know three hours yep. ago and they Absolutely. just now calling 911 you see that that timeline does matter the Absolutely. deterioration is is uh, drastic at that Absolutely. point um, so really time is of the essence and, uh, I've been in situations where we'll call a helicopter and most of the time it's for an NBC, like you said, right. it's for some kind of traumatic event and we'll have two or three on scene yes. because there's, you know, seven patients and they're right. all critically injured and, right. you know, that you can only fit so many people, uh, responsibly in an ambulance yeah. and still take care of them. That is true. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's a really neat thing that you get these these helicopters that can get there and most of the time you, you mentioned uh military a lot of the pilots for these yeah. helicopters are military yeah the majority of our pilots are military trained so with a, a significant amount of experience oh yeah and that's and that's what it really takes when you're landing something on a you know a 10 yard wide uh area absolutely. trying not to hit power lines and oh, people yes. and absolutely so uh, it's always a, a really interesting thing to see for those of you listening who have never seen a helicopter land on a highway it's a lot of fun yeah. um, 
and then eventually you get tired of having to do it. But uh, yeah. it is, uh, it's a lot of fun the first few times you see it. It's really cool. So, um, okay, so we've got the scene responses. And then uh, I would imagine one of the things that you respond to, like, rural hospitals yeah. for is probably stroke, heart attack, Absolutely. cardiac stuff. Absolutely. The, the neurological events like that, um, the cardiac events, um, high-risk OB events, right. and anything where that patient really is um, uh, critical or trending critical that in their condition and what they require exceeds what the resources of that facility is. And, and not that those providers in rural EMS or rural <laughs> hospitals are, are less capable. It's simply a matter of, of resources oh, available yeah. and, and time. Um, hopefully, the way that we're conducting business as pre-hospital and hospital providers is doing what's in the best interest of that patient. Absolutely. And so even, even when it's uncertain if that patient actually needs rapid transport, if we're erring on the side of what's best patient care and what's going to lead to the best outcome for that patient, then that's always a good thing. That's what we would want personally or for our family or anything right, like that. Right, absolutely. And and you hear that word uh, in almost all of my podcasts, um, the uh, what's best for the patient or what's the best possible outcome for the patient. It's always we're looking for whatever's in the patient's best interest. Absolutely. And I think that's where the need for uh, helicopter EMS or even flight EMS in general right. comes in is right. is that that uh that question is what's best for my patient. Sure. Um and obviously if if the ambulance service or the hospital or whatever it may be doesn't have the resource then right. that's always what's going to be best is to get them somewhere better quicker or not better but more equipped. Absolutely. Um, quicker. Yeah. So uh, I like that. I like that a lot. So let's let's talk about. Some of the, I mean, we, we know that you can take a majority of patients in, in, in a helicopter, just yeah. like you could in an ambulance. But there right. are some restrictions. Yes, there There's are. There's some patients that just, it's not safe to fly. Yep. They can't fly. Right. Talk about some of that. What, what, is, what would make someone ineligible to fly? Well, um, typically, it's going to be a size restriction if it's okay. a really large person and not just total weight, but also girth. Right. You know, if they, if they don't fit, and if they don't fit where... Um, uh, we, we can fit them safely uh, without causing further injury and also be able to care for them and treat them in route, then it's, it's more dangerous. And, and there are times we land on a scene and actually ride with the EMS crew to wherever we're going just right. to be extra hands, extra, extra, uh, extra treatment for that patient on the, on the way to a facility, even, even if it goes by ground when they call air. We also have... Um, uh, Doing a cardiac arrest patient, doing a cardiac arrest, doing, you <laughs> know, chest compression, stuff like that in the air. It's just not efficient and as effective. So we typically don't fly a patient that's uh, in cardiac arrest. Now, we do post-cardiac arrest flights, and we do uh, sometimes imminent cardiac arrest, and we do code people in the air. We do... So how does that work? I'm interested. Oh, man, in gosh, man. It's, uh, it's quite the challenge, just the space... <laughs> Uh, restriction and just uh, access to that patient and the challenge of doing effective compressions and yeah, all the I other can't. treatments. I'm trying to visualize uh, how it would work and I just can't even consider it. You just kind of brace yourself against the <laughs> ceiling there, the, the the interior of the aircraft to do compressions. And you, fortunately, you have two uh, providers. Right. And, and, the, and to qualify to, to fly, I mean, some of the requirements uh, for uh, 
two flies, a medic or a nurse, is a significant amount of experience. You have right, to have a right. certain level of experience before um, they consider you a qualified candidate plus the ongoing care. So you have two fairly experienced providers. So that, that helps in, in that aspect, but still just the uh, challenge of, of uh, having to, to tr not only a cardiac arrest patient, but any critical patient that requires a lot of different interventions. It, the, uh, the space restrictions and everything just add a little, a little bit more, a little, difficulty, a little more difficulty to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most no, definitely. Absolutely, and that's the thing I always notice when I see helicopters. Yeah. I'm like, man, how do they do any of that stuff yeah. in a helicopter? How I, do you get all that? I mean, stuff I can't in even there. imagine trying to take a blood pressure yeah. in with those things. But right. I mean, y'all are trained to do it, and you do it. So um, here's a here's a really specific type of patient that that interests me. Uh, for flight, um, the the patient that has an internal bleed, yep. uh, pressure comes into play big time sure. with an internal bleed. So right. how to how to how is that managed? As I mean, pressure rises, yeah. it's it more intense as you're going up. So how yeah. do we how do we manage that? Well, for rotor craft helicopters, mm -hmm. we don't fly very high. So it's not ground. usually an issue. It's there. it's typically not. An issue for helicopter. It it does, of course. You know, you you every every um, uh, certain number of feet that you're in elevation, the the barometric pressure decreases a certain amount. Right, right. So that you know, but typically that's uh, for us in this part of the country, it's not as big a deal. Now the mountain regions that comes into play more, and that's some things that you have to manage and you have to be more aware. Of uh, air embolus and and oxygen demands that the patient may have right. because the the aircraft the helicopters are not pressurized because they're just not designed for to that, go that height. Flight. Exactly. Now, and most aren't. Now there are, you know, there are some very specialized um, uh, flight services, air air EMS services uh, that are beyond anything that we do. You know the the true rescue guys, the Coast Guard guys, folks like that. I mean that's a that's an entirely different realm than than what we do. Very right. very specific. We're not we're not rescue. We we don't descend from the helicopter in harness <laughs> and harness and stuff like that. Yeah, no. We helicopter. don't we don't do any of that. We're we're strictly we're like an ambulance with with rotor right. blades, you know. So well, and, and you know, you mentioned earlier that uh, you guys will get on scene, and maybe they're not flyable, but you're yeah. willing to stay and help. Yeah, and I've seen do. that. I've seen Absolutely. you know. Uh, you, you mentioned have most of the time it's an experienced provider that's yep. on these helicopters. Exactly. And I've been as a as a young medic, I've been in a situation where I'm like, sir, whoever you are, yeah. whatever medic you are on this yeah. helicopter, <laughs> I have no idea what to right. do here. Please go with me Certainly. and help me get this done. And and it's I mean it's a it's a really special thing. And and helicopter EMS has a totally different regulation. Than ground right. EMS because in ground EMS typically you can't just jump on an ambulance that you don't work for right. or anything like that. But the regulation says that you know, EMS providers that work for air EMS are yes. allowed to do so, Absolutely. which is really cool. It um, it's a it was something that somebody had a situation where they could have used it and yep. were like, we got to change this. Yeah, uh, which is what most of EMS is. It's well, we messed this up, so let's figure out how to fix it. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, okay, yep. so. Um, Challenges of, of air EMS, uh, size restrictions, yeah. um, some of the, I mean, like CPR, some of the injuries right. and stuff are difficult to manage in a Definitely. helicopter. Um, so you, you mentioned it takes a certain uh, type of qualification to become uh, an air medic. Right. So what is that? How do you become an air medic? Well, 
typically for, and, and it can vary by services, there, there's an accrediting agency, C-A-M-T-S, CAMES. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an accredit, accrediting agency for um, air medical transport. And uh, they kind of set some standards for uh, requirements for air medical personnel. And uh, for, a, for the company that I work for, the requirement is a minimum of three years experience as a, as a medic in, in the, the verbiage says in a busy 911 service. It's not <laughs> defined as X number of calls <laughs> right, per day. Right. And then um, there's, a, there's a, uh, a pre-employment qualifying test that's a, kind of a general knowledge test that's a little bit challenging. Like you, a, you, kind of like a critical care. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of a, uh, it doesn't include a lot of the flight physiology and things of that nature, but it's just to kind of see where you're at. And, um, and, it, and it does require you to kind of keep up. And, and most medics, I think, I think the majority of experienced medics that really take their job seriously could pass it. Right. You know, maybe not the first time, but then preparing for it, if they, if they test again, would be able to with no trouble. And then they do put you through um, some pretty intense uh, education and training as a part of your orientation, which is several months, six months orientation process and then uh, they do require you to get advanced certifications like a, a flight paramedic certification and what what agency is that through because I'm not familiar with how that works um it's the um IBSC what the heck is it I'd have I to think look it up for you I think just. I've seen that before <laughs> yeah I, like IBSC absolutely. or something yeah and then there was another one that's and associated yeah as exactly like and it's kind of an international um certification and, and that does take you actually have to study for that. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard the know. testing for that is pretty difficult. It can, it can be. Not, so. And some, you know, it kind of depends on how you're geared as well. Some guys could walk in and sit down and take it and with flying colors. But it does go into the into the flight physiology and, and more of the um, uh, um, critical care aspect of uh, patient care of EMS. You know, the, Well, so the general the medic couldn't just walk in unless they're something exceptional and yeah, just take they, it and be done with they it. They would have to be gifted and they would have to have been exposed <laughs> to really, a lot really of other... Or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of things that you have to memorize, you know, some uh, uh, different, you know, pressure parameters, right. your cerebral perfusion pressures and systemic vascular resistance pressure, you know, just stuff like that. And, See, and that, and that how, makes me has, have anxiety already. Oh my gosh, man. <laughs> I remember taking that. I made me a study sheet that was the front and back of a, of a just regular sheet of paper, but I filled it up with all those things that were like a have to memorize. And I just memorized it. And when I walked in to take that test, I got my, my scratch paper that they provide you. And I just, Sort of regurgitated all that all out on that paper and then referred to it through the test. That's how I did my uh, EM, my national registry skills. Is yeah. I memorized the assessment process yeah. and had the picture in my head immediately yeah. sat down and wrote it on there the you go. paper. Exactly. So, exactly. So it's so uh, you gotta do it. Yeah. It was kind of a and, and it's a requirement for all flight services that I'm aware of that you obtain those advanced certs and then the ongoing education and the uh, we we have um, clinical assessment skills competencies and things of that nature ongoing in fact i have to go to one next week it's just a regular thing and and just a continual stream of uh education modules that they require you to do which, which is good yeah no it's i mean the, an excellent thing the expectation 
kind of the expectation and the myth at the same time. The expectation, if you're air medical, is for you to be a top-level provider. You're right. supposed to be like at the pinnacle of the industry. The best and that's the also best. kind of the myth as well. I mean, um, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you who is, if you're a good uh, medic that takes your job seriously, and especially if you work in a busy 911 system, you're going to have skills that air medical people lose just because of the, the nature of the patient contact that you have. Right, right. So it's a little different environment. But um, the myth that somehow air medical is like a superior branch of, of pre-hospital care versus ground and stuff like that, that's, that, that's just not true. It's just another, uh, just like we were talking about earlier, it's just a different um, aspect, a little different environment of, of what EMS involves. Right. So. Um, anyone that, that looks at their little area as being superior, that's that's not really healthy. And that's kind of no, one of the ways no. that we shoot ourselves in the foot, you know, as well, uh, EMS you providers. Well, because they're like, oh, I thought you yeah. were the best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that expectation is there. And it, and it does, it does um, working with a nurse, you learn a little bit different lingo and you're exposed to different things and you, and you learn especially communicating in a facility, right? just that nurse lingo and kind of their thought process and communicating with providers, you, you do a lot of that. And so that's, a, that's, that's a one aspect of it that's really challenging and also really, really good, a, a, a great learning curve for people. But, well, and I, I mean, I think uh, the part that's appealing to me about Air EMS is, one, being, being always been a ground service person, yeah. Uh, you do get that idea in your head that oh they, they definitely know more than me for yeah. sure and I and I'm I mean I'm fairly positive that's true in my case at yeah. least I'm just young and don't <laughs> don't have the experience yet um, but uh, I think the thing that's appealing is that working with another type of provider yes where you can yep. learn the other side of it exactly it, it's something that that we need to be doing even outside of that sure. that part of EMS sure because we have always had this thing between nurses and, and paramedics yeah. that it's some kind of weird tension yep. that I have no <laughs> idea where it's coming from because right. it's two totally different jobs right. um, in different worlds. But I think the idea of getting to know someone on that level and, right. and working with them and them seeing how you operate, uh, there's probably a new respect that comes with that. And I think that that's important for all of EMS right now is Definitely. we're trying... We're, you mentioned the word profession and, and vocation. Right. Um, and uh, most people think of the EMS job, uh, whether you're paramedic or EMT, as a um, technical job. Yep, exactly. And it's <laughs> it's a view that we're trying to eliminate because right. it is, if you've ever done this job, it is absolutely not just a technical job. Right. There is way more involved in it. I'm not saying we're anything near a doctor oh, level no. of, of understanding or, or knowledge or anything. We are not. But uh, but I am saying that we definitely are not just technicians. We're not just uh, the hands that do the work. Exactly. There's a, there's a lot more to it. And part of changing that that view, part of taking what everybody sees us as and, and making it something new is changing it into a profession. Right. That means being professional, uh, understanding the other side, learning about what it is to be a nurse, what it is to be a doctor. Uh, changing the level of expectation as far as treatment and education. And yes. you, you mentioned we're doing that already. Absolutely. Um, but I think the, the EMS providers themselves 
have this view that it's everyone else's problem right. and it's not on us to change it. And right. something that I notice about the air providers is that they don't have that outlook because right. you've been around the other side and uh, you know that's not the case. Um, so it, it's an appealing field of EMS. It's an appealing place to be in order to, to gain that respect. So um, I, the thing that I know everybody wants to hear is tell, tell us as much as you can about an interesting call <laughs> that you've had as an air medic. I know you've got to control the, the HIPAA yeah. and all that, but Absolutely. as much as you can tell us, give us an interesting call, something that sticks in your mind when you think of, I'm a, I work on a helicopter. Well, I, I, I can give you some generalities, most definitely. Okay. But, um, you know, in, in EMS, and, and honestly, a, a part of why... Uh, people are drawn to EMS. Not only, you know, we want to care for people and we want to serve and we want to help and you find a lot of compassion in this industry. You also find a lot of um, uh, the adrenaline junkie <laughs> side of folks, you know. So yes. we, when, we, when we talk about interesting calls and good calls, typically we're talking about someone that was a really bad day for yeah, someone exactly. else. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, and so that's, that's something that... that um, to always be acutely aware of is the things that we um, uh, consider something that, you know, this is why I got into this profession was re a really bad day for someone else in their family. But on the flip side of that, those are the calls that we train for. And those right. are the calls that we're there. Uh, we, we are really needed, you know, EMS in, in any form is really needed when someone is in a bind and it's a life or death situation. And, and we are, uh, exposed to that, just like the ground uh, providers who call us to those scenes. Right. We're exposed to those type of uh, uh, circumstances. There was um, this, I, I want to relate this one because it's uh, probably a once in a century occurrence, and I actually wasn't on this scene, but it's so uh, beyond belief that I just want to kind of relate to it, just so that whoever's listening in whatever role that you're, that you're in, um, it was a tragic event, but it also shows how multiple multiple uh, responders and disciplines came together and worked and gave their last effort to uh, make a difference for this. We we had a crew that responded to uh, a rural town, <coughs> a rural facility. It was uh, the aftermath of a really tragic NBC with multiple fatalities, and there was one patient uh, that. Uh, technically had survived the initial impact and was in a small uh, rural facility in, in an ER. Um, what makes it more interesting is that the responders uh, for this particular patient in this small community um, knew, you know, there was a lot of folks, there were, there were some responders that were related to the victims of this NBC, which makes it uh, horrific as well. Right. But there were also witnesses and people on scene that just happened to be providers. There, were, there was even a physician on the scene that was just passing through the area that stopped and helped and lent his help. And this entire community responded, and um, uh, our crew got on scene. The patient had coded a few times um, already, and significant traumatic injuries just all over the place. It was a, a, a pretty windy day. There was there was some issues um, with, with weather, whether they were going to be able to fly well or not, and and uh, just the issues trying to do all these interventions on this patient to and be able to get them in the aircraft and get them to definitive care. Um, 
they would try to load the patient with code, have to go back in the facility, Gosh. do it again. Just any any traumatic injury you can imagine this uh, this uh, uh, patient had experienced. Uh, multiple things like uh, chest tubes were in place, had the needle decompress. Um, of course, had had to uh, do uh, chest compressions with all of that equipment on the pads were on, uh, intubated, vent. Um, various pressors, um, fluids running, just trying to research. So just anything that you can imagine, as well as uh, people trying to look for other injuries that they could manage, like like long bone fractures, extremity fractures, things of that nature that were bleeding that they could try to control. Because, you know, that's in a, any kind of traumatic event, you're bleeding. Especially if you're having to do CPR, you've got to control yeah, the bleeding. Exactly. So, so, so it was um, a really uh, just overly traumatic situation. Our crew actually called our medical director, who's a great guy for this region, one of the ones that they got in touch with, and he gave them as much advice as he could. You know, this, this patient had open uh, chest wound, um, multiple open fractures, just everything was just a, a mess. And they were, they were able to finally uh, get the patient to a point where they could load the patient in the aircraft and head to definitive care, a, a level one trauma center. Uh, uh, patient made it there, uh, but they did uh, declare the patient dead in that facility. There was actually family members waiting at that facility for them to come in. It was just a, it was a horrific, tragic event. But that's just, that just goes, uh, that just kind of relates to uh, the fact that you just never know what you're gonna experience, ground, air, hospital, rural facility, well, well, uh, well, a facility with all the resources you can imagine. You never know what's going to happen. Right. And so we, we uh, experience a lot of that, um, unfortunately, yeah, as, as providers. That's just, if you haven't yet, if you're out there and you're brand we'll new to this, there. if you haven't experienced it yet, you will experience it. So it's uh, uh, a lot of, a lot of tragedy. And, and we've, I like the success stories as well. We transported, uh, there was just a, another MVC. A guy was actually going to work to a job site and met another guy on a, on a bridge over a little creek that um, no ice or anything anywhere else, but this was elevated enough that the, it just glazed over. They met at the wrong time at highway speed head on. Um, you can see the damage when we were landing on scene that it looked like no one had survived that. This person survived. We didn't think he, this person was going to make the transport. Uh, made the transport. Wow. <laughs> Ended up going to ICU. Uh, had a young family. Uh, was expecting another child as well. Ended up going to ICU. Uh, no one really expected uh, this person to recover, but um, they did. And it was it was uh, probably the most horrific. Um, MVC that I've seen where a patient was not actually dead or did not die immediately from their injuries, just um, pieces of the vehicle embedded. Wow. And I mean, it was just a, a just a incredible, uh, inc a lot of energy transferred to the to uh, uh, the patient and parts of the vehicle literally embedded in their body and their leg and things of that nature. And a uh, patient ended up surviving. Um, going through rehab has full function of all extremities. Still is is still a little bit in the recovery process, but so you you have those that that are super tragic that don't turn out well, but then you have those that look hopeless, 
that actually um, actually recover and, and give you and give you a, a sense of wow this was you know this is why I do this job just to give someone that opportunity to actually survive the worst day of their life at that point so that's a that's a that's a, um, a one of the many stories and you're right I can't go into a lot of details but uh, needless to say you know those those situations like that are why we get into this business and you know and definitely we we you definitely have to develop um, uh, a healthy uh, respect for those type of circumstances and understand that you're just one piece of it and understand that that's why uh, we go through uh, training and, and try to keep skills sharp and increase our knowledge and always give our best because you never know when you're going to be in that situation when you were you're literally the difference between someone's uh, life or death and yeah so it's a it's a it's a demand and just like we were talking earlier you know the expectations for pre-hospital providers are definitely increasing yes and what we're called on to do is is um, you know sometimes you're just in that impossible situation where nothing's going to work and sometimes what looks impossible things actually matter and and a person's life is is preserved and and you get to see the result of that which is you know, everyone wants job satisfaction with their career, and that's that's one of the instances where you definitely feel uh, a sense of being part of something that's you know bigger than just your cert. Absolutely. Well, and part of the what motivates me to do these podcasts is uh, I, I see the the level of compassion diminish for yeah. a lot of providers yeah. as time goes on, <laughs> and I I'm really trying to. Um, convey to all those EMS providers out there that that's just unacceptable. Yeah, we can't be that way. No. Uh, we can't afford to be that way. Our patients can't afford for us to be that way. Right. And and it's it's reality though. You see enough bad things. You know, you mentioned the tragic response that yeah. you were talking about, and uh, it starts to get to you. If it doesn't affect you, then you're not a human being. Right. And um, some people choose to take that and stuff it down inside oh and, and remove emotion and compassion from who they are. And then some people respond the complete opposite way. Sure. And uh, I want to teach EMS providers to, to respond somewhere in the middle, yep. to still be able to, to handle it and do your job, but to care about these people. Absolutely. Because it could be you. It could be your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your yeah. children, yeah. your grandparents. It could be any of those people in this Absolutely. situation. Um, one of our, our uh, last podcast was about addiction. And oh we, we actually had someone who was a recovering opioid addict yeah. come and talk on our show. And, uh, you know, the goal there was to say, look, I know that we get these calls all the time, but it's not like these people went out one day and said, let's just do drugs and never sure. stop. You know, sure. they didn't want to be an addict. It right. just happened. Right. And now they're fighting for their lives to, to get away from it. And so you you being on and talking to me about this was ideal because I know that you still maintain that compassion. You still care about these people. And, uh, and I think uh, other providers need to learn from that. And those of you that aren't providers yet, they're just getting your EMT cert or whatever it may be. Um, keep that in mind. Go Absolutely. out there and you really want to help somebody, just care about them. Sometimes yeah. you're not going to know what to do. You're yeah. not going to know how to fix the problem. 
you're going to have to try, and you may be wrong, you may be right, yeah. but uh, the point is, is that as long as you care about someone and do what's in their best interest and try to try to really take care of them, uh, the outcome may not be what you want, but it'll it'll be worth it, Absolutely. and it'll mean something to somebody. So uh, thanks for for coming and, and talking with us today. Uh, Absolutely, I'm I'm excited to to have you here. I know I'm I'm gonna want to have you come back and talk about some other things for sure. sure. Uh, one of the things I really want to talk about is uh, ministry, being being a Christian in the world of uh, of EMS or sure. being religious in the world of EMS. Sure. And we we discussed briefly how hard that can be. Absolutely. Um, so uh, so anyways. Um, it's uh, it's good to have you here and thanks appreciate thanks, it. John. So, it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. I do, I do like to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I love it too. So that's fine with me. So thanks again for joining us on EM Talk. We hope that today's episode has been able to give you some kind of motivation, some kind of education, some better understanding of whatever it is that you needed to hear today. We hope that you'll continue to join us here. Please subscribe and like and give us uh, some great reviews feel free to reach out to us on the internet at our website axoneducation.com again axoneducation.com feel free to email us at info at axoneducation.com or give us a call at 866-466-0911 we'd love to hear your thoughts on our podcast on our program on anything ems remember knowledge is vital in ems it's life or death we'll see you next time